This is The Guardian. Today, for years, Australia's right-wing politicians saw global heating as a fringe issue. On Saturday, it helped to lead them to one of the worst defeats in Australian political history. there's this weird thing about Australia. The country's been absolutely hammered these past few years by devastating bushfires, droughts, terrible floods. We were warned of catastrophic conditions and right now there are seven fires burning at emergency level. Cars washed away and homes decimated. Authorities are warning of a life-threatening flood emergency. It comes in the lead-up to November's climate summit in Glasgow and lifts pressure on the Morrison government to increase its carbon-cutting ambitions. But the response in our politics has been largely to do the bare minimum to cut carbon emissions and leave coal and gas in the ground. The nearly two-decade fight over how Australia should deal with global heating has been called the climate wars. On the one hand, there have been these scientists and campaigners raising the alarm, arguing this freak weather we're seeing isn't an accident. On the other side, there's Australia's powerful fossil fuel industry and politicians like Scott Morrison, who's been so devoted to coal, he once brought a piece of it into parliament. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. Mr Speaker, those opposite have an ideological, pathological fear of coal. There's no word for coalophobia officially, Mr Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite. The climate wars really mean that for a decade now, any attempt by any party to have a halfway credible policy on reducing Australia's greenhouse emissions has been met with an incredibly shrill and incredibly effective political attack that has unseated prime ministers, unseated opposition leaders, and really prevented us from having a credible climate policy for more than a decade. As natural disasters have become more destructive and more frequent, an Australian climate policy has fallen behind the world. Australians have started to get pissed off. Firefighters are battling blazes whipped up by strong north to northwesterly winds. They're exhausted and they're at their wits end. You from the media, tell the Prime Minister to go and get from Nelligan. We really enjoy doing this head. Thank you very much. And started to do something about it. Last weekend, Australia held an election and its political landscape was transformed. The moment Australia's new Prime Minister acknowledges his victory, leading the Labour Party to power for the first time since 2010. I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. It's a difficult night for Liberals and Nationals around the country as nights like this always are. The right-wing Liberal and National Coalition was shattered, losing some of its safest seats to independent candidates fresh faces who'd entered politics only in the past few years, inspired by a few things, but one issue above all else. Climate was the biggest vote switching issue, I think. And in the end, voters went for these other parties that said, yep, we're gonna do something about it. Our 
climate has changed. Yeah! Together, we can take advantage of the opportunity for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. Together, we can end the climate wars. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, Guardian Australia Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor on the election that blew up Australian politics and may have finally ended the country's climate wars. Lenore, to understand how climate change has essentially broken apart Australia's right-wing Liberal Party, let's go back a decade to when they came to power. Under the leadership of the arch-conservative Tony Abbott, how did he view the climate crisis? Uh, He saw climate change as a political tool, really. At least so far, it's climate change policy that's doing harm. Climate change itself is probably doing good, or at least more good than harm. He at one point said he thought the settled science of global warming was absolute crap. When he did become Prime Minister, he actually repealed our carbon pricing scheme. So he got rid of the one credible climate policy we've had in the last decade. And then that sentiment that you can weaponise climate policy to win elections really dominated politics for the next decade and no one really dared to do much. But Lenore, Tony Abbott only lasted a couple of years in the job before he was ousted by his own party. A little while ago, I met with the Prime Minister and advised him that I would be challenging him for the leadership of the Liberal Party. So what happened next? Malcolm Turnbull then became Prime Minister. He tried to have a credible policy and he got knocked off as Prime Minister for trying to do something on climate change. Malcolm Turnbull arrives at Parliament's House before the meeting that ended his leadership. And the move to oust him was triggered by his plans to enshrine carbon emission targets in law. Treasurer Scott Morrison will replace him. So this has been this defining issue through the last decade of Australian politics that has made it almost impossible to have a sensible policy, even though the business community was moving. The business community has been pleading for some kind of investment clarity to drive decarbonisation. The international community has been looking at Australia as a kind of pariah because we have have been doing so little. Australians will set our own path to net zero by 2050 and we'll set it here by Australians for Australians. And public sentiment had moved, but politics was locked in these wars and couldn't kind of see a way out of them until this election when the people had their say. I mean, this is really interesting because people overseas, if they know one thing about Australian politics, it's that we like to kick out our prime ministers every couple of years. But Mm. perhaps it hasn't been as well known that climate policy has been a part of the reason why every single one of these leaders, Kevin Rudd, Mm -hmm. then Julia Gillard, then Malcolm Turnbull, and now Scott Morrison, have been turfed out. It's just been this constant factor the entire time. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, you can sort of understand the background to it, that we're a major coal exporter, we're now a major gas exporter, but there have been so many credible policies and policy pathways to turn our natural advantages to enormous riches in a renewable, low-carbon world. We just haven't taken them. (laughs) 
Lenore, do you think the Liberal Party sincerely didn't believe that climate change was a problem? Or did they just not think Australia could do anything meaningful about it? Like, help me to understand this position they held, which from the vantage point of 2022 seems completely crazy. I think they were deeply divided and the climate sceptics in the Liberal and National Party were prepared to put everything on the line. They were prepared to, you know, blow up the government, um, leave the coalition, do whatever it took to ensure that the party didn't take a credible climate policy. They made sure that Malcolm Turnbull was knocked off as Prime Minister rather than allow him to create a credible climate policy. There were always moderate Liberals who thought that this was crazy, who thought that this was wrong, who were working inside the coalition for a better policy. And now, now in defeat, some of them are actually speaking out and saying so. Look, here's the thing. Um, What we did was basically say, you know, the ship's going to keep going at the same pace. That's not inspirational. That doesn't grab the hearts and minds of young people. But they were never prepared in government to fight their corner quite as hard as the Conservatives fought theirs. And they backed in the more climate sceptic side of that argument for most of those years. Okay, and over this period, as Australia continued to resist effective action on the climate, how did the country begin to appear on the world stage? I mean, what was happening to Australia's reputation when it came to these issues? Well, it was really hurting our reputation on the on the world stage. Other governments would, you know, really push the Australian government in sort of quite undiplomatic terms. It hurt us in our region. You know, a lot of the countries in the Pacific who stand to be most affected by global heating. The Prime Minister of host nation Tuvalu blaming Australia. We uh, stressed very strongly during our exchange, in fact, between me and Scott, uh, as said, you are concerned about your saving your economies. I'm concerned about saving my people in Tuvalu. This was a fundamental issue for them and, and one of the reasons why they felt really disappointed in the Australian government. I mean, it affected all aspects of our foreign policy. And even at the Glasgow meeting where Scott Morrison eventually did go armed with his promise to reduce emissions to net zero by 2050, our biggest pavilion was funded by fossil fuel company. I mean, that is absolutely shocking, but the Liberal Party's approach to climate didn't actually stop it from winning re-election twice in 2016 and again in 2019. Mm-hmm. But what was happening outside Canberra, out in the country in the meantime? Yeah, look, a lot of things were happening across the country. Uh, the impact of global heating was right there in our lives with unbelievable bushfires. We are in the midst of a bushfire crisis tonight, the likes of which this state has never seen. People don't really understand it until you actually see it coming at you in a wall of flame. And incredible floods. I mean, the floods have just happened again and again uh, this year in an incredibly destructive way. People next door are on the roof. We're going to have to somehow get on the roof. I'm sorry. Yep. It's gone again, worse than the first time. So that really, I think, focused people's minds. It's undeniable that that the climate is changing and that these disasters are happening more frequently. And there's been a perception throughout that that Scott Morrison wasn't taking responsibility, wasn't acknowledging the link between the frequency of the disasters and global heating. 
there was, I think it really was seared into the public consciousness when the bushfires, the really horrific bushfires were burning in Australia at the beginning of 2020, he took a holiday to Hawaii. And that somehow that just that fact really caught the public imagination. And when he came back and he was being questioned about why the federal government wasn't doing more, he said the phrase, I don't hold a hose, mate. I, I know Australians understand this and they'll be pleased I'm coming back, I'm sure. But um, they know that, uh, you know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit in yeah. the control room. No. Um, that's the brave people who do that are doing that job. But uh, oh God, I'm about the people who have and these things were sort of put together effectively in ad campaigns by the Labor Party as well, it must be said, but also just in the public consciousness to create an impression that he didn't take responsibility either for the climate crisis or its consequences. Lenore, the centre-left Labor Party won last Saturday's election, but that wasn't what made it such a watershed moment in Australian political history. It was something else that happened. In wealthy seats, like the ones that line Sydney Harbour, which have voted for the Liberal Party for decades, this time went another way. Not to Labor, but to this new brand of independent candidate called the Teals. First, explain the name. Why Teal? So the independents are called teals because they are actually have, were running in blue, blue ribbon liberal seats, like the safest of liberal seats, but they were very concerned about climate. So they were a bit blue and a bit green, so that's teal. And those teal independents and the Greens were both using a sort of really pushing a new form of grassroots campaigning. They started a long time before polling day they really energised the electorate, listened to people, had armies of people backing them. In this election, that type of campaigning was helped with some funding from a group called Climate 200. It was established by a Melbourne philanthropist, Simon Holmes Accord, and it, and it gave funding to these independent candidates to try and help them match the major parties in advertising, which was always their, their greatest um, weakness. They got a bit more organised. They sort of they're not a party, but they did liaise with one another, share notes, if you like. And the Greens were doing the same thing in Brisbane. They were out door knocking tens of thousands of houses. They also handed out care packages during the pandemic. They were helping people um, during the flooding, like with practical things, getting stuff out of their houses. So these movements convinced people person to person that the messages that were coming through in some of the national media that, you know, that climate change was a fraud or that we couldn't afford it or that, you know, your power bills would go up in an unaffordable way. These grassroots people power movements convinced people in these electorates that, no, actually, there were very sensible policies to be had and politicians who, who cared about them and their concerns in the electorates as well. And it worked. This was a night that reshaped Australia's electoral landscape. A teal wave washing away two ministers in Melbourne, including a man talked about as a future Prime Minister. Keong's never going to be quite the same again. The Greens have three, possibly four seats in the lower house. The Teals won six of those inner city seats. It, I, mean, I think it's quite an astonishing um, movement. It's quite an astonishing development and, and really quite hopeful for people who had become a bit cynical about the way politics works.
And from what you're saying, Lenore, these people who voted on climate, they weren't just like lefties or greenies. A lot of these people came from suburbs that are pretty rich that have traditionally voted for the conservative side of politics. Oh, yeah, for the Teals, they were, they were almost entirely in inner city, extremely wealthy, extremely well-educated seats and seats that had been held by the Liberal Party forever, you know, seats that have produced all the Liberal Prime Ministers we've ever had. What message do you think that it sends to the major parties? The Liberal Party no longer reflects the smaller Liberal values of electorates like Keong. It's moved too far to the right. We want action on climate change. We want integrity and transparency in government. We want gender equity. We want women to feel safe in the streets. And climate was a major factor in, in their vote. It wasn't the only factor, though. Integrity in politics was another really big issue in this election. And also in this term of government, there's been a real reckoning among women voters. There were a number of of horrible allegations of rape and sexual harassment and sexual assault in Parliament House itself. Uh, I think it was widely felt that the former Prime Minister dealt with that inadequately. And I think that mobilised a lot of professional women as well to support these campaigns. And Lenore, I wonder that as Australians have had to deal with these terrible natural disasters and as these independents have started to gather steam in safe Liberal Party seats, did Scott Morrison get a sense that the winds on this issue might be changing, that he might need to, to get serious on the climate crisis? I mean, my view is that he made a calculation that, yes, he were, he may lose some of those inner city seats, but that with uh, enough hip pocket policies to attract the sort of suburban voters in outer suburban seats, and that he would win back more votes, more seats in outer suburban and rural areas than he would lose in inner city areas. I think he made a, a calculation that he was sort of shifting the tenor and the and the pitch of the Liberal Party, and it was a calculation that really, really didn't pay off. It's basically destroyed the Liberal Party. Right, so he thought that if Australians are caring more about climate change, it's just a small, rich minority, and the rest are more afraid of things like higher taxes or, or more environmental regulation. That was his calculation. He calculated that the swing would run differently in different areas. And, you know, there was an element to it. The swings were very different in different types of electorates. But I think the um, the outer suburban voters weren't as swayed by the negative campaigning and the sorts of promises that Scott Morrison was making as he thought they would be. And there's a, an Australian billionaire who made his money from iron ore mining and also owns coal mines who spent estimates vary, but something like $70 million advertising his right-wing minor party in the lead-up to the election. There were these bright yellow billboards on every highway, on every street, like really everywhere, ads in all the papers. You know, his advertising was incredible. He was trying to sort of harvest the vote from anti-vaxxers or people who felt aggrieved by pandemic lockdowns and and other sort of populist issues. And um, his, he, he got nothing for his money, like not one seat in the lower or upper house, like absolutely nothing. I think the Liberal Party thought that he would do a lot, a lot better. I mean, that's really interesting because we live in this era of, of disillusionment with governments around the world. And in a lot of places... 
that's manifested as more support for these kinds of fringe right-wing parties. Mm -hmm. In Australia, it seems like it's gone the other direction. Exactly. That's the thing that I find so hopeful about this election, that this kind of grassroots campaigning has actually harvested or channeled that voter disillusionment into creative campaigns with positive policies for the climate and for political integrity. It's in, it's made people enthusiastic about politics again, and it's going to make the Liberal Party really think about what it's doing and where it's headed. It, it was a win for politics to be done differently. It was, it was a loss for politics as usual. Coming up, what Australia's climate election might mean for Australia's climate policy. Lenore, you've said that the Labor Party took some pretty uninspiring climate policies into the election. Mm -hmm. Will these victories for the Teals and the Greens, the fact that they're going to have this sizable presence in the Australian Parliament, will that actually impact the way Labor governs on this issue? So the Labor Party says not. They say their policies remain the same. And this, I think, will be the really interesting thing. You know, Anthony Albanese's uh, target to cut emissions by 43% by 2030 is... What the science says, that's not enough for us to play our, our fair share. Um, his policies were quite deliberately modest to, design, to limit the risk of a scare campaign. He's going to cut taxes on electric vehicles. There's some sort of modest policies to reduce industrial emissions. He's going to bring forward the construction of electricity transmission links so that renewables can be rolled out more quickly. Uh, it will be really interesting when the dust settles and Labor looks at the result and looks at the crossbench and looks at how many voters actually uh, put climate really at the top of their considerations in casting their vote, whether they feel emboldened to do more than what they've said, and particularly whether they feel emboldened to agree with the Teals and the Greens that we really should put a moratorium on new coal and gas projects, which you know, most scientists say is the very least we, could, we should be doing to try to limit global heating. And what about the Liberal Party and the Conservative Coalition? How did they react to this loss? Like, will this force them to reassess the way they look at the climate crisis? Well, because most of the moderates in the party who held and argued internally for stronger climate policies have now lost their seats... I don't know. The proportion of uh, climate sceptics or people who argued against any stronger action on climate in the party is now greater than it was before the, the election. Peter Dutton, who's likely to be the new leader, is no, is no friend of the climate. There are members of the coalition who say quite publicly that they think the whole idea of net zero emissions is dead internationally and why bother? Or that Australia makes up such a small uh, proportion of global emissions, it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, so this is the debate that has to go on within the coalition. Do they double down on the direction that they were taking or do they reassess and try and win back the centre ground? Okay, and so now if this increasingly right-wing rump of the Liberal Party that's left, 
continues to fight on this issue, continues to deny the need for effective action. Can we say Australia's climate wars are over, or is that a bit too early to declare? Uh, I think whatever the coalition does, I think the climate wars are over because the electorate has spoken. You know, the electorate has delivered a clear majority for uh, progressive politics and action on climate. If you add up the votes for the Greens, the votes for the Teals and the votes for the Labor Party, those ideas won this election. They really had enough of the weaponisation of, of climate policy that we've really endured for the past 13 years. Scott Morrison lost, and I think progressive ideas and participatory democracy won, and it's the end of Australia's climate wars. I can't tell you how good that is. Okay, and so the Liberal Party took a climate policy to COP26 in Glasgow that was widely seen as inadequate. The next COP meeting is in Egypt later this year. Will Australia go to Cairo with something better? Uh, Well, the Labor Party has a, a stronger 2030 target than the coalition did. Uh, its 2050 target is net zero, the same as the coalition. But I think Australia is likely to be received better at the next COP just because we now have a willingness to work with the international community in a way that we didn't before. Anthony Albanese's first full day as Australia's 31st Prime Minister spent on the world stage. We will act in recognition that climate change is the main economic and security challenge for the island countries of the Pacific. A lot of groups are actually pushing the new Labor government to pitch to have a COP here in Australia and in conjunction with the Pacific Island states, which would be an interesting idea. I mean, this is just an extraordinary story that we've reached the point where in a Western democracy, the climate crisis can reshape the political landscape. I'm wondering, Lenore, if you think this story from Australia carries lessons for other similar countries. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that climate was the only issue in this election. I think we need to be clear that there were there were there are a lot of issues that swayed votes, but climate was certainly, you know, was certainly a major one. You know, I I would hope the the lessons are that if you treat voters seriously, if you really listen to them, if you start campaigning well ahead of an election and you're not doing it through a slick strategy or a marketing campaign, but just by sitting around a kitchen table and talking to people, that that actually works. I think that's one of the lessons from this campaign. Lenore Taylor, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. That was Lenore Taylor, the Editor-in-Chief of Guardian Australia, and you can read more analysis and news about the Australian election at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back on Monday. This is The Guardian.